Our scripture reading comes today from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, reading through chapter 3, verse 10. It reads as follows. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one is able, no one abides in him, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him nor known him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you pray with me this morning? Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 1 John chapter 2. If you need a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 1022. 1022 in the pew Bible. Well, as we begin, uh, imagine, imagine with me, it's a lazy Saturday morning and you have slept in. After a long week, you have decided to wait to clean up the house, not to do the dishes, not to do the laundry. You think you're going to wait to do that until Saturday afternoon. It's now mid-morning while you are barely out of bed, still in your Uh, Comfortable pajamas uh, with coffee in hand, and the doorbell rings. Now, just this illustration may seem hard for some of you to believe, but there was actually a time where people went to each other's houses unannounced and rang the doorbell. They didn't even tell you they were coming, and they just showed up. That actually happened. Some of you know what that's like. It doesn't happen anymore, but it used to happen. So let's pretend like it still happens. Nevertheless, you open the door in your 
present condition. Only to find your in-laws from out of states standing outside your door, ready to spend the weekend with you. You are obviously woefully unprepared. Your home is woefully unprepared. You knew they were coming. You just didn't know when they were coming. And they decided to come what you think is a little early. Right? The scene is pretty awkward. You can maybe imagine the scene. You might want to kind of slip away, go back to your bed, and imagine that this never happened. Right? Now, that's a silly, a silly illustration, but maybe you're able to relate. Relate at least with the idea of being caught unprepared. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know about this, this, this kind of feeling. Or maybe you can remember as a child, or if you are a child, you might remember a time when you were engaged in a behavior that your parent did not want you to be engaged in, only to find that they arrive before you can stop said behavior. You know that, that feeling of, of being caught doing something you weren't supposed to be doing. Uh, in, in a similar way, that, that, that idea, those ideas, that those feelings of being caught unprepared, of not being ready for someone's arrival, we all can kind of uh, identify with that to some degree. But, but in an infinitely greater way, the Apostle John wants Christians to be prepared, to be ready to have confidence when Christ appears, when Christ returns. Verses 28 and 29 close out chapter 2. But they're really, uh, they, they really serve as a, a, as a hinge or a transition in John's writing between two sections of his con- content. We'll see this as John mentions some themes that we've already heard in these verses, as well as themes that will be taught later in chapter 3. So look at, again, with me, verse 28, and it reads like this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we will have confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. Uh, John here begins with, and now, which is indicating a new paragraph, a new section. And now, uh, little children. This is a a phrase or term that he has used before. He'll use again uh, a way of talking about his readers who are children of God. He's calling them little children. To these Christians, he repeats a, a previous instruction. And he says, abide in him or continue in him. Or keep on in him. I was reading this week um, a book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he actually referenced this, not from this passage, but he referenced this idea of of abiding. And he says that sometimes when when we hear that word abiding, we think of that as as something that's passive. That uh, we're passive in it. He says it actually means, to, to abide means to do what he tells you. To abide in him means to do what God has told you to do. Therefore, he writes, it is a tremendously active thing to abide in him. So when John says abide in him or abide in God or abide in Christ, he's not talking about something that is passive. It's not something that, that we just, it just naturally happens. It's something that we intentionally do because of who we are. Are. Well, John went on to tell us the outcome of the abiding in the rest of verse 28. We see it with the word, so that. So, now, now, and now little children, abide in him, so that. 
we abide so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at his coming. The appearing of Jesus or the coming of Jesus, the coming again of Jesus is a theme throughout the New Testament. We can look at this in several different places, in several different uh, kind of ways, but it is said to be mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the Bible. So I think it's kind of important, right? That we get, get this idea of his coming, of his return. And that John certainly wants them to be prepared when he appears. Again, a reference to his, his second coming. But this word appear also gives this idea of, of a suddenness or an unexpectedness. When he appears, when he shows up, and we know that he's going to show up, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is coming again. We just don't know when. But when he comes... John wants his readers to have confidence, and we can have confidence. Jesus is coming back, and we will see him. Listen, whether you believe that or not this morning doesn't matter. It's true that he is coming back, and we all will meet the Lord one way or another, and we all will give account to him for the lives that we live. So the question is, will we have confidence at his coming, or, according to John, will we shrink from him in shame? Confidence here is the idea of boldness or the idea of courage. While shrinking from him in shame is the idea of, of being ashamed. One writer says the fundamental thought here is that of separation and shrinking from God through, uh, through the shame of conscious guilt. Or, do you have guilt before God this morning? That if Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready to see him? Those who have confidence are those who are his children. Those who are ashamed are those who are not, or those who are not in fellowship with him. Those who have confidence are those who, who long to see him. At the end of the second letter to Timothy, the apostle Paul writes, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not to me only, but, to, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Do you long for his appearing? Do you want to see Jesus? Are you ready to see Jesus? Some of us might say, I I'm ready, just not yet. <laughs> oh, we we're, not, we're not the people who decide when, right? We're not on the planning committee, one writer says. We're on the reception committee. We're, we're receiving him. Are you ready to receive him? Do you love his appearing? And if you do, according to the, the Apostle Paul, there's a reward awaiting you, the crown of righteousness. Some look to the return of Jesus as merely a release from this earth. Like we're just all kind of waiting around to get out of here. I got news for you. We're coming back here. You know that, right? Like heaven isn't up there. Heaven is here. Not yet, but it will be. The new heaven and the what? New earth. We're going to live on the earth. So this idea, we want to just get out, get out of here. We want, we want a renewed earth. Yes, and amen to that. But the coming of Jesus isn't something we're just longing for to get us out of here. It's actually a motivation for our present activity. 
Meaning the coming of Christ is not just a doctrinal truth, but a motivating reality for righteous living. It's actually the return of Christ that motivates us. His coming motivates our abiding. Dr. David Allen writes, Fellowship with God, maintained by abiding in Him, allows us to enjoy a genuine confidence when we meet the Lord. Fellowship with God, maintained by abiding in Him, allows us to enjoy a genuine confidence when we meet the Lord. John then identifies the evidence of those who abide. Those who are the children of God, or as he says in verse 29, those who are born of God. Look at it in verse 29 with me. If you know that he is righteous, that, that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. That word if could be since. Since you know that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The evidence of being born of him, being born of God here, is seen in our actions, in a changed life, in this everyone who practices righteousness. Right living is the evidence of conversion. It is not the cause of conversion. It's the evidence of conversion. No one obeys themselves into a relationship with the Lord. It is because of what God has done that then we practice righteousness. The cause of conversion is God's work. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How? Who were born. They were born. How? Not, not of blood. You were not born a Christian. I was not born a Christian. You may have been born into a Christian home. You were not born a Christian. Nor the will of the flesh. You didn't just muscle it up and decide you're going to do it. Nor the will of man. No, no one did it for you. But no person did it for you. But of God. You were born of God. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to Nicodemus. And he talks about the new birth. And being born again. You were not born again on your own. None of you decided to be physically born, and none of you decided on your own to be spiritually born again. God moves first. You must be born of God. John continues in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 to expand on this concept of the children of God, beginning in verse 1, where we see what he thinks we are now, or what he says we are now. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Those who are born of God are the children of God. That's what he's saying. This is brought about by the love the Father has given to us. How's, how does one become a child of God? Through the love of the Father that's been given God is the giver. God is the giver of the love that brings us into relationship with him. It is this love, this, the love of the Father that John calls his readers here to, to see or to ponder or to study or to behold. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. How, how do we see that love? 
in one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten son, that whosoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God makes us family. God makes us a child of God, and he does it through his son. Therefore, if God has made us a child, that means we're part of his family. If you're part of a family, you have family relationships, and you have family likenesses, and you have family characteristics. One theologian says this, God's children bear his likeness. God's children bear his likeness. If you are a child of God, let's ask this, in what ways are you bearing the likeness of God? That's, that's an objective measurement, isn't it? What my life looks like God. What my life looks like Jesus. There are far too many, far too many, who claim to have prayed a prayer at six, or they were told that they prayed a prayer at six, and have no evidence of faith. And yet they hang on to some distant memory as though that is what salvation is. That is not what salvation is. We must confess in our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Yes and amen. But what accompanies that confession is a changed life. It's a life of obedience. It's practicing righteousness. So how about you? What in your life looks like Jesus? John says what we are now are, are, are children of God. If you're a child of God, then you're going to look like God. Well, John not only stated what we are, but he also states what we will be. Look at verse 2. Beloved. I love that. He uses this, this term a lot, uh, referring to the readers. It's a term of uh, endearments, in his heart for them. Beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So not only has John said what we are, that's a present tense. We are the children of God. We are the children of God now, he says. And what we will be has not yet appeared. He's telling us what we will be one day. One day we will be like Jesus. We will not be Jesus we will be like Jesus. There's a difference there. But here we can see three expectations that we can have for what is yet to come. That Jesus will appear, that we will see him, and that we will be like him. We will be like him. In Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is to come is the full fulfillment of Genesis 1.26 for you and me. Right now, we are, we are in the image of God in that we bear his image. Yes and amen to that. But we are not fully like Jesus. We are not in our glorified bodies as of yet. And yet one day we will be. One day we will be made in the, the image fully and finally. But we're not there yet. Verse 3 tells us what we should be today. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Everyone who hopes in Jesus, hopes in the coming of Jesus, hopes in who Jesus is. This is a Christian hope. Christian hope, we've talked about this before, but it's much different than you hoping that the Lions will win or hoping that the weather is good, right? That that's not the hope that it's talking about. This, this, this is a confident expectation. It's as good as done. It's certain. We, we hope in Jesus. Those who hope in him purifies himself as he is pure, as Jesus is pure. See, the coming of Jesus in our future transformation, because of that, we are to live pure. We are to live holy. We are to live righteous lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the apostle Paul again, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The command is throughout the scriptures to be holy because he is holy. That is the call of God on our life, only able to be accomplished in, in, uh, in part in this life, clearly, because we are fallen, but through the power of the Spirit. The children of God abide in him, and therefore we have confidence at his coming. But how can we know that we are the children of God. John is identifying himself with the reader here. He uses the plural pronoun of we over and over again in those verses. We, we, we. we he's, he's identifying. But how do we know that we can be part of the we? How do we know that we are part of that we? Well, we know that, that the writer John is heavy on repetition. He repeats himself frequently. Already in chapter 2, he, he, he gave us three different tests of assurance. And now here he begins another set of tests that are, that are similar to the first set. And by this, but, but, but with, this time, but with a contrast, we'll see. He wrote these tests or he wrote these, these contrasts that we might know who is truly a child of God. That's the point. That's what John is doing for the Christian. That, that you can have assurance, that you can know. Again, we've talked about this. This is what John is doing. So we look this morning at the first of these contrasts from verses 4 through 10. The contrast here is between sin and righteousness. Again, in a similar way to earlier in chapter 2, where John repeats himself um, directly. He, he says a few things, and then he says a few more things, sometimes in the exact same way or sometimes with variation. He's going to do the same thing here in verses 4 through 7, in verses 8 through 10. It's the same it's the same point said in different ways. And so we're going to look at each point together as we go. And the first is found in verses 4 and then in verse 8. And here we see this, this idea of sin and its origins. He's contrasting sin and righteousness. So he begins by talking about sin. Look at verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, let's define some terms this morning. Sin is wrongdoing. Sin is, sin is any act contrary to the will and law of God. One catechism says that sin is transgression of the law of God. Another says sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. It is not being or doing what he requires of his law. 
We all, we're all that boat, aren't we? Right? We all have sin. But those who practice sin also, he says, practice lawlessness. Lawlessness here is, is wickedness. It is without the law. It is, it is no law. It's a rejection, our active disobedience to the will of God. Then he says this, this phrase, practicing of sin. When he says practicing of sin or practice of sinning, that's in what's called the present tense, which tells us that this is an ongoing sinful lifestyle. So when the apostle John writes, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, he is writing about people who are in a habitual ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle of sin. There's a difference between somebody who, who sins and repents and someone who, in John's words here, practices sin or practice of sinning. It's an ongoing nature of sinning. John's point is that those who practice sinning demonstrate that they're not a child of God. Jump down to verse 8, the first part of verse 8, and we'll see the origin of sin here. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? Of the devil, for the devil has been practicing sin, or been sinning, excuse me, from the beginning. What is the origin of sin but the devil himself? In this sense, all sin, by its nature, is satanic. You know that? All sin by its nature is satanic. Those who continue in it reveal whose they are, whose child they are. We'll get more into that in just a moment. That's the bad news, right? Sin is lawlessness. Anyone who practices sin is not, is of the devil. But then he tells us something super encouraging in verse five. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So after telling us about the sin, he says, but guess what? Here's the good news. Jesus appeared, and the appearing here is not the second coming, it's the first coming. That Jesus came first to do what? In order to take away sins. Jesus, the Son of God, came in order to take away sins. John states the reason for his coming in two ways in, the, in these verses. The first is in verse 5, and he did it. Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Listen, sin is so serious that it required the very Son of God to become human, die on a cross, in order that we might not pay the penalty for our sin. Sin is no small matter. No small matter. Jesus could do such a thing because, as John writes in verse 5, in him there is no sin. Jesus, and only Jesus, is sinless. He is the only spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus took our sin so that we could be forgiven. Jesus appeared in order to take away sin. John continues, look at the end of verse 8. We'll start there with the words, 
the reason. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he appeared to take away our sins and he appeared to destroy the works of the devil are synonymous. They're, they're analogous in, in what, they, what they mean, what, they, what they're saying. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 says it this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, this is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This is the promise from the garden. The destruction of the devil is the promise from the garden. You remember this. Right after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and they are confronted, Jesus, or excuse me, God is, is meeting out the punishment. And as he is giving the consequence to the serpent, to the devil, he says this, you shall bruise, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is what is often termed the first gospel or the proto-evangelium. It is the first gospel. It's the first time in the Bible where we are seeing that there is a plan of redemption that the, the, the wicked one will be destroyed. That Satan may, may bruise the heel of Jesus, that being the cross, but that in his death, Jesus would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus did just this in his death. And he did it, if you flip back just one page to chapter two, verse two, he did it because he's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Jesus took away our sins. He destroyed the works of the devil by taking upon himself the wrath of God, being the propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God for our sins, in order that we might be forgiven. And because Jesus conquered sin, that's what these verses tell us. Christians are no longer under the power and tyranny of sin. John continues to talk now about the Christian and sinning. Look at verse six. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Christ came to take away sin. So then, those who abide in him must not continue sinning. That's the point. Now, do Christians sin? Yes, Christians sin. So what is John saying here? John is not calling for perfection. He's not calling for sinlessness for multiple reasons. One is that he has already said in chapter one, verse eight, that if anyone says they have no sin, they're deceiving themselves. Clearly we have sin. So what is he talking about? Again, John is referring to a perpetual, habitual lifestyle of sin. Something that is ongoing and indefinite. The practice of sinning. If, if he keeps on sinning, a, a professing Christian if a professing Christian were to keep on sinning, they would only demonstrate that they neither abide in him, as verse 6 says, nor that they have ever seen or known him. The practice, the ongoing, habitual, unrepentant, 
indefinite lifestyle of sin demonstrates that one is not a child of God. Because if they, they did, if they did continue in sin, if a professing Christian continued in sin, they would have to re be rejecting what, what Christ has done. Any Christian, any true Christian knows what Christ has done. And because of what Christ has done, that then motivates them to no longer live in sin. It gives them the power to do so. Well, verse 9 tells us more about why a true Christian cannot continue indefinitely in sin. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, so no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That's a pretty bold statement. Why? Why could he say that? Because God's seed abides in him. What's God's seed? God's seed is the new nature that God gives to his children at salvation. It's what the Apostle Paul calls the new man. Or what he calls in 2 Corinthians, the new creation. Because, because God's children are not what they once were, they are no longer to live as they once did. Because God's children are not what they once were, they no longer are to live as they once did. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, John gives this, excuse me, Paul gives this great example of this when he talks about those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He gives a list of those things, not an exhaustive list, but he gives a list. And then he says, and such were some of you. You once were like this. You once lived in this kind of sin, but you were washed, verse 11 says, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Because you are a child of God, you no longer live this way. James Montgomery Boyce summarizes John's test here and the reasons behind it like this. If a person has truly been born of God, then something radical happens in him. He has received a new nature. It is therefore, and for that very reason, launched on a new course. The course is the course in holiness. Therefore, if he does not go on in holiness, this indicates that he has never in plain fact been born again. On the other hand, if he goes on, he can be encouraged by his faith and take courage. End quote. The points, that points, John continues as we look at verses 7 and 10. Read it with me. Follow along as I read. Little children, again with the little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. But this is evidence, by this it is evidence, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is concerned for these Christians, that, that they would be deceived. Deceived by who? By false teachers. We talked about just a few weeks ago how there were people from their church who, who withdrew from the church in order to teach false things about Jesus, false things about Christianity. And John is saying, I don't want you to be deceived about this. And here's what I want you to know, that whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Basically, John was saying, watch how people live and they will tell you who they are. 
Jesus said it this way about false teachers. You will recognize them by their fruits. You want to know what someone is like? Watch their life. If people practice righteousness, that's living by righteous principles, they are righteous and they are the children of God. Again, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 says that, that a healthy tree bears good fruit and a diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The evidence is in the life. The evidence is in who practices and what they practice, righteousness or sitting. If someone does not practice righteousness, they are not of God. And according to John, they are a child of the devil. Now, that might seem harsh this morning. You might feel that I'm being a little judgy this morning to say that those who do not practice righteousness are of the devil. Well, I'll tell you this. Those are the options. Those are the options. The Bible refers to either being in Adam, in another way, in Adam or in Christ. Those are the options. You are either the child of God or you're a child of the devil. Those are the options. And let's remember that no one is a child by, of God by default. One writer says, those who exhibit a sinful lifestyle are from their father, the devil. He said, well, again, that sounds kind of harsh. Well, who else would their father be? If your options are God and the devil, and they continue in a, a lifestyle of sin, I'm not great at, 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 at a lot of things in academics, but, but I, at either or here, people. It's either the devil or, or God. You only have two choices. You have 50% chance of getting it right here. But again, who else would it be? The devil, after all, is the father of lies. Jesus said this in John 8, verse 44. He's writing to religious people. The Pharisees, you are of the fa your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire, that being the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So if someone participates in the things of, of the devil, then whose child is that? But the child of the devil. I want you to know this morning that the Satan hates you. The devil does not love you. You might not be a Christian here this morning. And you might be a child of the devil in this sense, but I want you to know that he hates you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your life. John chapter 10 says that Satan, the thief, wants to come to steal, destroy, and to kill. Right? That that's what the Satan is after. Uh, I listened to an author this week named John Eldridge, and he says that, that the enemy is, is past the stealing phase. It is only kill and destroy. And you see that, don't you? Don't you see it now? Don't you see it in the world that you're living in? Whether it's physical death or the death of, of, of so many things, kill and destroy. And I want to beg you this morning, don't believe him. Don't believe the devil. Don't believe the devil. There's some of you here this morning who might be believing the lies of the devil. 
You might think that your life doesn't matter. You might think that you don't matter. You might think that God's not good. You might think that this is, this is all a sham. Don't believe him. It's a lie. Satan would love nothing more, nothing more than for you to not believe that God is good. John 10, 10 goes on to say, while, while the enemy, while the devil, while the thief has come to kill and destroy, Jesus has come to do what? Give us life more abundance. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. You can know that abundant life today. You who today might sit there as, as an unbeliever, someone who does not know Jesus, I want to invite you this morning that you can know him. You can know the abundant life. You can know the joy of knowing God as your father. You can. If you would repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sins and trust Jesus to be your savior. If you are not practicing righteousness this morning, you are not of God. In the only way you'll ever practice righteousness is not because you're good. It's because God is righteous. And because you're born of him. And therefore, because the spirit of God is in you, that's why you can practice righteousness. The righteousness is not of your account. It's because of who is in you. But this is the test before us, the test of righteous living. And the contrast is to practicing sin. So what do you say this morning? On what basis do you claim to be a child of God? As you look at your life, is there any evidence of such a claim. This morning, if you're a child of God, you can have confidence. You can have confidence at the coming of Jesus. You can, you can love his appearing because when he comes, you're not gonna shrink away. But if you don't know Jesus this morning, there is no confidence. There's no reason to be confident. But you can't have the confidence today. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, to take away sin, that we might be saved. That we might receive the forgiveness of sins and receive life eternal with the Father, that through the Son, and then empowered by the Spirit, walk in obedience, walk in holiness, live a righteous life. Enabled by the Spirit, we can abide in him. We can have confidence at the coming of God that we are his children so we say with John in a later letter that he writes, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your son who came to destroy the works of the devil. To give to us life, to give to us hope, to save us from our sin, making us children of God as we abide in you, as we fellowship with you, God, we can know, we can know that we know. We can know that we're a child of God. We have confidence when Jesus appears, that, oh Lord, would you send him now? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Yet, Father, we're mindful that there are those who are not ready to receive Jesus. They're not ready for him to return. So even now, in these moments, would you convict their heart? Would you open their eyes? Would you cause them to see, 
the lies that they have believed? Would you bring them into the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done, the life that is available in him? Oh, how we need you. May we give thanks for your son, whom you sent for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Our God.